loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Michelle Cleveland. Michelle's worn many hats, including immigrant, army wife, mother of children with learning differences, small business owner, and finally, suicide awareness advocate. In 2016, she lost two of her children to suicide. Turning tragedy into purpose, Michelle founded NTC LifeWorks to honor the memory of her sons and share what she learned through her journey in the aftermath. In 2021, NTC LifeWorks expanded its mission to helping young entrepreneurs live a rich and fulfilling life. Michelle continues speaking on resiliency and participating in panel discussions for suicide awareness. She's also launching a new suicide prevention initiative called Project 24-7. She currently lives near Atlanta, Georgia, with her motorcycles and her daughter's cat, Forth. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm honored to be here. Honored to have you. And of course, uh, if you if if you haven't had a certain loss, I can still say, even though I know a lot about loss, I don't know what it would feel like to have the loss, the losses that you've had. But I, I think many people would put them high on the list of profoundly um, horrific kinds of losses to have. Do you agree with that? Having, having um, lived with your son's deaths for some time now. It's interesting that you say that. I have people in uh, the survivors group that I attend one mother in particular was coming up to me and said, I only lost one child. I can't imagine how much worse it is for you. And I thought, no, <laughs> well, no, all, it is what it is. Right. All struggling. Yeah. And yeah. for some people losing a job can be as devastating. It's a kind of grief. Sure. And I think everybody is affected differently. Mm. So, you know, what may be just eh, stubbing my toe to one person is, oh, my God, how am I going to survive this to another person? That, that's for sure. And I appreciate that you're highlighting that actually we can't compare griefs, but I'm sure that um, it was a pretty devastating loss uh, when your sons committed suicide. Uh, I, I did watch your, um, the video you made with your daughter <laughs> and um, to to have two other children you were s- trying to support as well, uh, that's a lot to handle, isn't it? It is, but it was also my purpose. It was what kept me going. Mm-hmm. I couldn't jump off the carousel and just let life go or worse. I had to keep going. I couldn't abandon them. I had to keep the roof over our heads and things like that. My uh, middle son, Rustin, was... Um, at that point, a lieutenant in the army. And he was at his officer's basic course 
down at Fort Benning, which was about four hours away from us, he had a life and he had to focus on it. And it, it was, it was for my kids. That was my initial purpose was. That's what got you from one day to the next day to the next day. It sounds like Mm -hmm. that, that there were people still relying on you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. After a while, that kind of fades though. You see Mm. that they're on their own. Now what? Mm. So for you, it sounds like the, the part where we have to actually feel the grief and all of that, it sounds like it on some, on some levels happened later. Is that what I'm given to understand there? Absolutely. Initially when you're focusing on taking care of others, it's easy to just get in the moment. And yes, there are times when you just can't function for that period of time, a day or whatever, an hour, even just moments. But after you kind of live with it a little and keep going, I think the second year is when it really hits. And that's when it's real. They're not coming back. They really are gone. Mm, Absolutely. So many people say, you've got to just make it through the first year, the first Christmas, the first Thanksgiving, the first birthdays. But you're prepared for those. And it's almost surreal in some ways. But then the second year, the third year, the fourth year, they still are gone. It's interesting you say that. My wife died in 1995. So what is that? 26 years, something like that. It's been a minute. (laughs) It's been a long time. And um, every year on the anniversary of her death, and, and I have a beautiful life. I've been married again for quite a long time, 24 years, you know. But every yeah. year I go, man, death lasts a really long time. So it's that sense of you're, you're still incorporating it over time. Still yeah. dead, right? <laughs> yeah, still dead. Still dead. <laughs> You're not coming back. And of, and of course, that is also a particular aspect, I think, of of young adults dying is that all the things that would have happened in their lives from that point forward don't happen. Um, so there must be reminders, I would think, oh, uh, ongoingly. When, when Rustin got married, he and Sadie were so kind, they included Thomas and Nicholas in the wedding by having, I don't know if you're familiar, in the military, they have um, a table set and the chair is empty. And it's for those that are missing Mm. and gone um, and out of respect. And so they set a table for Nicholas and for Thomas and it had their pictures and the places were set just like all the other guests. And they put the table in the middle of the two doorways that were between the dining room and the area where the dancing was. So initially the ceremony was in that room. Then we went out to the dance floor for a cocktail hour while they reset the room for dinner. And when we came in for dinner, there was that table right there between the doors. So that as we came and went from dinner to dancing and came back to sit in the dining room a little, they they were part of it. 
The other thing that really moves me about that is that um, the guests could not get around the presence of the absence. Yes, very much so. That that his brothers um, would have been his groomsmen. Yes, and and acknowledging. I think one thing that does go on for people in grief is the lack of acknowledgement of for whatever cause you know uh people not referring to the person people not Mm -hmm. and and i think that's an added loss of of connection it is it is and i hear that again and again especially with people who uh, are lost through suicide because other people think it's hurtful to bring it up so they don't mention the person but it's not hurtful Mm. it's well, it's like that disturbed song, Hold On to Memories. Have you heard that one? I'm not sure if I've heard it. It's a wonderful song in that it's no one ever dies as long as we remember them. Ah, uh, yes. And then our job is to live life to the fullest in their memory. That That has more and more meaning for me you know, as I do things like this, that mm-hmm. rely on, rely on the experience. Yeah. I, I don't know how I would divide myself uh, into, you know, pulling that part out would, would take away so much in my current life. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, not that it's possible anyway for me, but, uh, you know, the, the other thing we're talking about there is Obviously, there's there's a sort of cultural shame around suicide, all of those factors. But the other thing that does, I find, for people I, I talk to who've lost someone uh, through su- suicide is it diminishes their totality. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that if someone mentions it at all, they're talking about how the person died and not and not who they were. So let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about who Thomas and, and Nicholas were, uh, because you had, they were young adults. So you had, you know, some couple decades of experience of them <laughs> as, as whole people. Yes. 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 Thomas was the youngest boy. Um, my daughter, Natalie was 15 at the time. Thomas was 18. Natalie's 21 now, but Thomas was 18. He had struggled all along. He was the quiet one, the compliant one. You could ask him anything and he would do it with a smile. He Mm. never complained, never, do I have to do that? No, he would do it. Um, Can you go mow the lawn? Sure. And he put on his earbuds and go mow the lawn. He was always, always that one who would do anything that you asked of him which I think is rare in kids. Indeed, I have three (laughs) and some grandkids. So yes, I'm aware. (laughs) He had simple needs, simple wants. He was, well, here's a good example. He went shopping for some shoes, new shoes. He needed some new shoes with his um, stepfather. And he saw some green converse. Green was his favorite color. And he was so excited when he asked, can, can I have those? And Travis said, yeah, absolutely. You can have any ones you want. Really? Mm. I can have these? 
he was just always so happy to get anything. Hmm. It was, he was grateful. He had an attitude of gratitude about everything. Um, he was a gamer, very much a gamer. That was something that he and his friends and his siblings had in common. That was kind of the, the thing that bound him to the other ones. That's how they interacted with gaming. So for his 21st, what would have been his 21st birthday, I invited all his friends out to a, a place called Battle and Brew. It's a gamer's bar. <laughs> and you can go to different areas and have them set you up with games and you can play. There was one area that we reserved that was like a living room. It had a sofa and some chairs and a coffee table and a giant screen TV where we played some of Thomas's favorite games and had drinks because he was 21 <laughs> or would have been. So, that was had, they all, had they all made it into, uh, into their, you know, legal age, uh, his oh, friends, yes. all friends <laughs> so all they all yeah, could drink yes. to him. They uh, were all allowed to drink to him legally. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, he, he was what, the one, he was the glue. He was the one that uh, poured his belief in the others into them. He was the one that said, you can do this. I know you can. And he was the encourager for that group. And so I, I, I feel a, um, compelled to, to highlight that someone being kind, agreeable, warm, supportive, all those things you're describing doesn't always indicate what's going on inside of them that leads to taking one's own life. Absolutely. You know, the, the two seem incompatible. And yet that's a story I've heard from other parents of young adults who have taken their lives um, yeah. that they were the giving one or the, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, so does that, mean that at at first um you had trouble understanding it or wasn't there another part of him that made it not so no. um no, was, unlike most people we knew exactly why thomas spent from 8 30 in the morning and when the first note was saved until one o'clock when the last note was saved writing 12 different goodbye notes to all of his friends and family on his computer. And then he left instructions on how to find them on his computer with his computer right where everybody would see it. That's, so that's profound, exactly, isn't it? He explained exactly why. You know, uh, I, I spent a lot of time with Stephen Levine. I mentioned him a lot on mm. the show. And yeah. it, and and once he, more than once, actually, he was talking about um, an approach to if you think you might want to want to take your life uh, because he believed that was a, the person's right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that and the fact is no one can take that right away as yeah. you're as you're well aware. Yeah. And he said, OK, if you're considering it, don't do it rashly. Mm -hmm. uh, take a week, take two, two weeks every day, contemplate it. 
figure uh-huh. out what you need to do. It sounds to me as if Thomas did that, that he really yeah. thought about not leaving more of a load with all of you. That well, he was very, very insecure. He had a lot of trouble finishing high school. We didn't know until graduation day if he'd be able to graduate that day or not. He struggled. And he had lost his job recently because um, in hindsight, he was probably autistic like his one of his brothers and his sister. Mm. But things slip through the cracks and you don't see everything, right? Right. And he was on the verge of starting a new endeavor, an internship program. And he and I had been shopping for suits all weekend. He was so excited. But then he was just too scared of failing again. And that's what he said. He was just Mm. too scared of becoming a burden. He couldn't stand to fail again. I think those kinds of differences in the world, I I just um, uh, interviewed someone who, who is autistic, who wrote a book about his experiences. And there's the part that's just you're different and, and yay, you know, you're yourself. Mm-hmm. But, but there's the part of it that's about how the world responds to that and the load of shame and, and loss that comes from being different in whatever way you're different. And of course, suicide is, is more common in LGBTQ people in you know, um, people, uh, lots of people who are marginalized in that way are more likely to, to have that kind of experience. Agreed? Absolutely. And that's why I have special uh, resource links on my suicide awareness page for people with autism, LGBTQ veterans, people that have all these different unique issues that only people who understand them can really understand. Yes, there's there's the boat of difference and then there's, or the sea of difference, I guess, but then there's uh, each person's uh, experience with their particular difference. Um, yes. It, it needs to be, uh, I guess, understood and, and um, empathized with. It's time for our first first break, but let's come back and talk a little more about that after the break. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. There's a link to my novel, all my everything, place to sign up for my email. And to find Michelle Cleveland, you can go to ntclifeworks.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. 
That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice of America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Michelle Cleveland about the life experiences, the letter to her work as a, as a coach, suicide prevention advocate, uh, lots of different work, and we'll get into the details of that in a minute. But before the break, Michelle, we were just talking about the extra load of being different in any way, um, what that places on people and and how hard it is to then love yourself when... Uh, you, you're not being loved and accepted for just who you are. Absolutely. My daughter, Natalie, is 21, and her friends all know her really well, but they don't see the struggle that it takes for her to appear neurotypical. They just assume that's how she is, the way they see her. But it's not. <laughs> she works hard right. to appear that way. Yes. In fact, last week I interviewed Mickey Rowe. He, he wrote a book called Fearlessly Different. He's, mm-hmm. He is an autistic person. Um, and he talks really eloquently about that. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he really shares a lot of detail about the ways that he has to change himself in some sense and mm-hmm. and that a huge part of the reason for that is the way other people react not that he's uncomfortable with the way that he is right. any longer but just that it makes it too hard to relate in the world uh because people have such a strong reaction that's true that's true um and so let's let's um so you're you're imagining that Thomas was probably somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah, in hindsight, and, there were a lot of clues. <laughs> but he must have been also sort of a, able to get by. Yes, 
that was his struggle was evident oh. and and not something that stood out so much that you that you I don't know, got him diagnosed or whatever that would have well, led we to. We tried to have him diagnosed in elementary school. Unfortunately, we were in a county where there were disincentives to identify children. And his teacher that was tasked with filling out the testing uh, um, instrument um, was retiring that year. And she didn't want to jeopardize her retirement. And so even with her, and she was the one that said, hey, you know, there's something different about Thomas. <laughs> Even with that, he showed up one point not autistic. Mm. Just, just on the other side of the line so they could deny him services. Well, and I've, I've been thinking a fair amount about this. You know, we're all on the spectrum of being human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. We all fall somewhere <laughs> on there. <laughs> and... And there's this sort of dividing line instead of the question being, uh, you know, who are you? What are you about? And how do we support you? Mm -hmm. um, which Very I think so. is, is really a more useful approach. But unless mm -hmm. unless we pathologize something like that, people don't get services. They don't get help. Yeah, so exactly. you have to you have to kind of fall over that line to get any help, don't you? Mm -hmm. But what I've always done with my children was to explain to them that LD does not mean learning disabled, means learning differences. And to look at what they have as advantages because of the way they think differently and the way they see the world differently. We look at problems head on, but they look at them obliquely and see a totally different solution than anything we could have seen because they see the situation differently. I've just uh, heard so many, because people are, are speaking out more, people who are quote unquote on the spectrum, mm -hmm. there's a lot more out there that, that carries that message. Uh, you know, I, I was even talking about last week, uh, Greta Thunberg saying that her autism was a tremendous advantage Mm -hmm. uh, tremendous oh, yeah. advantage that she wouldn't be able to be doing her climate change work without it because mm -hmm. um, she just sees it so clearly in her head and, you know, doesn't feel the need to fit in with how everyone else sees it. And I, I think yes. that's part of what we're talking about, isn't it? Yes. But absolutely. I don't, I don't, I want to spend a few minutes also talking, getting to know Nicholas, because um, the biggest thing I know about him is that he was a songwriter. And because I do music in my life, that caught my attention. <laughs> um, and uh, on the video I watched, uh, there was a song of his, My Stitches Itch, which what a title. <laughs> um, but the, my favorite line of it is, nothing really works like a light without a switch. Mm -hmm. That just captures so many situations in life, doesn't it? Um, it really when you does. can't, when you can't get something to be better. Um, so let's talk about him, him some. Obviously talented, um, and mm -hmm. and also, uh, you implied or said straight out that you believe that it was grief that caused him to take his life after his brother died. Could you talk some about your perspective on that? And because yeah. of course, 
we're not taught, taught how to feel. So then we have, when we have huge feelings, it happens to a lot of people that it's hard to handle. Um, but it, but it sounds like it was especially devastating for him. It was as the oldest, he always felt responsible, right? And he had always struggled. He was bipolar and self-medicated. We tried to get him to work with a psychiatrist and mom, it just, it, I can't think I, I lose my artistic edge. I, I can't create when I'm on these meds and he just didn't have the patience to try to maybe find the right cocktail to help him. And so he got into drugs and alcohol, wash, rinse, repeat rehab. And he was finally in a sober living community. He had finally had the patience to find the right medications that helped even out his bipolar, but he was still able to create. And when his brother died at the memorial, he grabbed a six pack at the grocery store and that was it. Mm-hmm. It just hit him so hard, mm-hmm. so hard. It, it was another tipping point. It makes me think a lot about, um, you know, those of us who can make something of, of our tragedies and those of us who don't seem to be able to do that. Um, Every time I'm working with a new client, for instance, that's my hope for them that they can, that they, that they have my definition, my definition of resiliency, which I guess I could also use the word adaptation. Mm-hmm. You seem to have that with bells on yourself. <laughs> um, would that be true? Was that always true of you that you could take any situation and figure out how to respond to it and go forward? Or is that something that came about through these experiences? What would you say about that? I've always tried to look at the good in things, but I must say that they're really what I found are three things that pulled me through. Number one, I have my people and it's not just coworkers, people at church, sorority, my people um, that I could count on, you know, the old joke, right? It's not the person you call to bail you out because they're sitting next to you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So those people, and I knew how to find peace. So many people, Cheryl, don't know how to step away from pain to change their perspective and get a reprieve from all of the pain job force anything. They don't know how to find peace. And how would you say that you personally do that? I hop on a motorcycle. Ah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My motorcycles are my peace. Um, when I'm on the racetrack, no, I'm not a racer. They let me go out there and I go, wee and go putt, putt, putt and let everybody pass me. But you're totally focused, whether you're on the street, on the track, in the mountains, you're totally focused. But also out in the countryside, I experience everything around me and I can just let the tears flow. And if I'm angry or hurting so much that I want to scream, I don't have to worry that the neighbors are going to call the police because in your helmet, nobody else hears you. <laughs> so, you know, that's so funny because when, when, um, my clients have something to get out of their system in some way, 
which mm-hmm. of course these days everybody does have something to get out of their system. Oh, yes. But um, yeah. I'll tell them to go drive in their car and scream because yeah. for the same reason, it's it's the most private space, isn't it? It really is. When you're when you're on the road, I didn't realize helmets would make it, make it so people wouldn't hear you on a motorcycle. Yeah. Um, but that makes a lot of sense to me. So it's not just, uh, I don't know flipping you you out of your experience because it's so enjoyable to ride it's also a place to have your experience so that you can move through it yeah depending Mm. on what the situation is obviously while i'm going through town in atlanta i would not be thinking about the kids i'm going to be thinking 360 and that's kind of a meditative state (laughs) just to make sure that you don't you don't get in a motorcycle crash right exactly you have to be really (laughs) focused on the activity and i think that's Uh very similar to meditation you have to be very in the moment well, I think, I think that's, that's very astute. You know, there's a, there's a book, um, the body keeps the score. Uh, mm, yeah. And, and a lot of what the author talks about is when trauma is getting activated, get in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds as if motorcycle, my motorcycle riding is a way that you do it. You have to be present in your body mm-hmm. to successfully get down the road. And, and then that lets the stuff move through you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that correct? Very much so. So Very since not so. everybody is, is going to become, a, a, for instance, I will never ride a motorcycle. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> you really should. Well, I'm, <laughs> I, I, one, I'm 69 and I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> Okay. But okay. two, I have my other ways to do the same thing, I guess. Well, uh, there you go. And I I have the misfortune have having lived with someone who'd had a motorcycle a- accident early in my life. So <laughs> kind of shut down motorcycle. But Uh-oh. what we're talking about really is finding, I love that that's not, you know, something that would be recommended in a book, right? ride a motorcycle it's Mm -hmm. that you found your way to very much to get um to get to the next place with what you were going through and feel some sense of authority over it yes yeah and everybody has to find their way you've got to figure out how do you find peace but then the third piece cheryl is you've got to have purpose Think about Mothers Against Drunk Driving, all the um, scholarships in memory of, right? Think of all the old guys back in the day who had these wonderful careers and then they retired. And remember what used to happen to them in a year or two? They died. (laughs) It's because they didn't have purpose, right? Their identity was gone. It was all wrapped up in that career of theirs. And Um, I would say that, obviously, uh, if, if your purpose is re- related in your own mind mm-hmm. to uh, the challenges you've experienced, it's very redeeming, isn't it? Yes. And that's why I named the company after the boys, Nicholas and Thomas Cleveland, MTC. And then LifeWorks is what it's about. It's about life. Uh, I know that you're about to launch a new project 24 seven. And when we get back from the break, I'd I'd like to start uh, with 
you know, you talking about that because that's another meaning making, purpose making aspect of your life, isn't it? Yes, it's very exciting and I can't wait for it to launch. It's coming. It's coming. I just got the graphic from the from the web designer. He came up with our logo. I'm so excited. Well, I don't always leave listeners with a tease at the end of the break, but I guess I am today. (laughs) So we'll be back after our break. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringrief.com or the Good Grief host page. To find Michelle Cleveland, you can go to ntclifeworks.com. And I wanted to mention that if you scroll way down to the bottom of the page, of the home page, there is a link to a, a page specifically about suicide. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Michelle Cleveland about her her mission for suicide prevention following two of her sons committing suicide. And, um, you know, Michelle, I, I wanted to 
start with talking about your project 24-7. Can you share with listeners what it is you're doing and how you're doing <laughs> it and all of that? And then next, after that, I'd like to talk about the whole subject of suicide prevention in the sense that no one can actually prevent, but what do you feel helps uh, so that maybe it's less likely for that decision to be made by someone. So let's start with Project 24-7 and then go on to that. Well, Cheryl, Project 24-7 actually is all about that. There are so many of these helplines and text lines now and everything for people who are in crisis because the latest statistic I heard was it's about 80% less likely that they will continue if they're in the act or pondering ending their lives if they can talk to someone. If you can just get them on the phone or get them talking, it's 80% less likely that they'll actually follow through. So, and I would, I would add, as a, as a uh, mental health professional, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a certain kind of talking where the person doesn't resist hearing about it. Exactly. And the big thing to me is when you're depressed, if you even make it as far as going to your phone to look through those contacts, when you're depressed, you're looking for excuses not to get happy, not to get over it because you're depressed. And so many times in everybody's life, there will be people who say, call me anything you need, anytime, please let me know if I can help. We all have those, don't we? But when we go to the phone and we scroll through, we won't call those people. We'll make excuses. Oh, it's too late at night. Oh, they're probably in bed. You know, he's, he's so busy. I don't want to bother him with this, right? We make excuses not to call those people. Well, and I would say, given that I work so much with grief, sometimes the, the um, assertive action it takes to go, go outward is not available. And I imagine that's yeah. also true with depression, that you just can't muster um, the, the oomph. You know, you can't take the chance on someone yeah. not being home or... <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So that's where Project 24-7 comes in. I was on my way to an evening meeting and a friend, just an acquaintance actually from networking, we had a connection and he took the time to call and say, hey, how are you doing? I just wanted to check on you. And that started this thought. Project 24-7 is about creating a group on your phone, just like your ICE list for emergency responders who, if your phone is locked, can go to emergency call and all your emergency contacts come up for him to call. Yes. Same thing on a phone, you can create a group and on the project 24 seven website, there's going to be instructions how to do that for Android and for iPhones. And you add to that those people who have told you and you confirm with them when you are feeling okay and can create that group, you create that group and you reach out to other people that you wanna be there for and tell them about Project 24-7 and have them create that 24-7 list, that group on their phone. And then you have no excuse not to call. 
And I also encourage people through Project 24-7 to find a resource, a text line, an appropriate helpline, whether it's the veteran suicide line, whether it's the general uh, helpline that everybody knows about, whatever, pick one generic, not your friend's professional helpline and include that on Project 24-7 on that list. And then you have somebody to call with no excuses. So make it as easy as possible. And then this, the person still has to. Uh, yeah, they still have to. Still have to be, be willing to do it, but you're yeah. removing some of the impediments. Exactly. It, it's removing as many barriers as possible. And by putting more than one person there, listing everybody as they tell you, hey, you know what, anytime, anything, then you turn to them and you say, now, I'm going to put you in my phone as somebody I can call 24-7. Is that okay? And if they hesitate at all, you're going to remember that. So don't put them on your list. That's very interesting because I know uh, I, a, a couple of people popped right to my mind from right after my wife died mm-hmm. who were actively willing to be those people. Mm-hmm. And whether I ever called them or I didn't, uh, profoundly helpful to know that we we had agreed that. Yeah. And um, it did help that the people I'm thinking of had lost a partner. So, yeah. you know, I had been on their call list. That does help. Reciprocity does. is, is uh, <laughs> an important thing, but not completely necessary. It's people no. you trust to, to mm-hmm. show up if they possibly can. Yes. You know, that brings to mind an interesting phenomenon that everybody assumes that when all your friends leave after a traumatic incident or a death, you lose all your friends. Well, I put it to you that a lot of that is because they feel impotent. They don't know what to do. And that's an uncomfortable feeling. They don't want to say the wrong thing, right? Right. I'd say, I'd say, yeah, for a lot of people, it kind of runs 50, 50, they get, they get closer or they, or the friendships fail. Yeah. And Uh, I'll bet you can think of new become really close. Yeah, it it could be. I mean, I'm pretty sure you got connected to people more deeply who could Mm -hmm. show up um, when this happened. I know that's true for me. Um, And then of course that, that affects the next time because you, you've already sort of vetted the people, right? The next time yeah. something big happens, they're probably going to be the same people who, who show up, aren't they? Well, I'd like to put a different spin on that. All right. Great. How would it be if you didn't lose that many friends? And I encourage people to be there for other people because then you experience that feeling of being the helper who feels impotent. So that then when you need help, you understand you're actually helping those people by telling them what you need. And maybe you won't lose as many friends. Maybe you'll develop deeper relationships with those people who are already your friends. It goes all different directions, doesn't it, Michelle? It really does. I mean, I, 
I hardly talk to a person who hasn't who's who's had profound loss who hasn't struggled with how to get supported because it's such a hard time mm-hmm. to instruct people right but yeah. but people do want to help i'm not faulting no. the people who don't know how um but nothing teaches you how quite the same as you know your own experience very true. very true <laughs> um, just simple things really help folks, don't they? Very much. Just come sit with me. Don't say a word. Just come sit with me. That, that's helpful. Um, listen to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the strangest thing, uncheck. That was my first language. And when uh, I was really just in the thick of it, I remember driving to work one morning and calling my mother. And in Czech, I said, mommy, speak to me in Czech. Mommy, please speak to me in Czech. Because, you know, that early memory is what's triggered, right? That comfort of home. I just had to hear, had to hear something from my childhood, that comfort. Mm. And you knew, you know what that was for you in some way, I imagine. Um, It just... it just occurred to me that that's what I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. And you listened to it and you reached out for it. Yeah. Yeah. So did it matter at all what she said or just that no. she spoke in your original language? Didn't matter. She could have told me about the weather or she could have <laughs> told me about the dog or anything. She could have talked politics, but as long as it was in that, that mother language, that mother tongue, as we call it. Mm. you're you're amplifying my sense that you know uh very very often when people are in extremity they want their mommy no matter what age they are (laughs) and you had a particular pathway to that which was inviting the language she probably spoke to you when you were Mm -hmm. first on the planet huh yeah i didn't i didn't speak english or hear english until i was three that's that's uh, a long time, right? I mean, that's when <laughs> yeah. we're that's when we're are, yeah. viscerally developing language. Yes, um, and so. so then adding another language, I think that that grows the brain. Uh, I it does it uses different neural pathways for sure. I wonder if that early experience, you know, to be to leave one place and go to another. I've, I've interviewed many people who had that experience, immigration experience, mm-hmm. and you have to develop a certain amount of resiliency, don't you? Very, very, for you, very, very early, like your whole yeah. environment changes and you have to adapt. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We went from living in Czech to an Italian refugee camp, a couple different refugee camps, and then we had our sponsor greeted us in New York and flew us to LA where they were going to settle us. And then we ended up being sent to Denver instead. And then dad got all his certifications. So then when I was eight, we moved to Georgia, I mean, just ugh, tossed salad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do credit with, I, I'm not an immigrant, but I lived all over the U S as a child. Mm-hmm. My, 
I'm a preacher's kid, which is a little similar to an army brat um, yes, in that, in yes, that way. Very much so. Very <laughs> so, much so. you know, it does. Yeah. I didn't uh, I didn't experience it this way at the time, but I do feel that it taught me to adapt in some ways that I rely on. Uh, yes. So, yeah, I've only oh, I've only thought about that maybe in the last decade or two that that was already building a capacity even though I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> that which does not kill us will make us stronger. <laughs> well, we can hope for that. Uh, you know, at least that's one possibility, isn't it? That's what we're talking about today. The possibility that, that something grows in us and not, yeah. and doesn't just traumatize us. I've, yeah. I've one, one, it, it appears to me, but I, I kind of want to confirm it before we get off of here, mm -hmm. that your other two children uh, have, to some extent, followed in your footsteps in terms of making, of going forward after trauma and, and choosing resiliency, choosing adaptation. Uh, I, got, I have that impression of your daughter because she participated in that video with you. <laughs> and I have that impression of your son because of what you told me about the wedding. Can you yeah. confirm my impression? I think it's adapt or not. Because if you don't adapt, how are you going to continue? How are you going to? You can kind of limp along, but it's not, yeah. a, it's not a, a full life, right? Exactly. Yeah. In order to live a full life, you have to. You have to adapt to the new environment and the new environment means every celebration there's going to be a whole those people that were there that were supposed to be there aren't i want to thank you for being with me today michelle i've enjoyed our conversation and i hope your project 24 7 just catches on like wildfire <laughs> thank you <laughs> i hope so i hope so Next week, I'll have Michelle Neff Hernandez, the creator of Camp Widow, to talk about her book, Different After You, Rediscovering Yourself and Healing After Grief and Trauma. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.